Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today this will be a short and sweet episode focusing on testing for the flu. So right now, as of January 2018, most areas of the United States are seeing widespread flu activity. Some patients can get very sick and even die, but most don't and do pretty well. So the main purpose of this episode is to encourage you to use your clinical history and exam to allow you to make the diagnosis of the flu without needing testing. So let's start out by reviewing the classic symptoms of influenza. And ultimately, they really depend on the age of the child. The most common story is abrupt onset of fever, headache, myalgias, and malaise with some upper respiratory tract symptoms, you know, like congestion, cough, and mild sore throat. Younger children can also see febrile seizures, more prominent respiratory symptoms, kind of croup-like or bronchiolitis-like, and more GI symptoms like abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. One retrospective study of outpatient children with the flu showed that 95% had fever, with greater than 50% of these children having fevers greater than 39 centigrade, cough and rhinitis in greater than three-fourths, headache in only about a third, myalgias seen in less than 15% in children under the age of 13. Most kids improve over approximately one week with or without Tamiflu, though cough can last longer. Some children will even have mild fatigue on exertion for a few weeks. You know, certainly these symptoms are variable. You know, even the individual virus plays a role. You know, influenza B strains, for instance, seem to cause a little bit more musculoskeletal symptoms than A. So we should test, right? Well, if you listen to the podcast and read PEMblog, you know the answer is not that easy. So let's review some of the available test categories for the flu. The first one is, well, your brain. So you make the diagnosis based on clinical suspicion using your history and physical. Next, point of care or rapid antigen or RNA testing. These tests can take less than 15 minutes and can be obtained from swabs, aspirates, or wash of the nasal passages or the throat. The overall sensitivity, even when disease prevalence is high, is about 50 to 70%. The specificity in times of high prevalence is 90 to 95%. False negative rates are especially high when community prevalence is high as well. False positive rates are much more common when disease prevalence is low. The cost is as low as $20 to $25, more at retail clinics, maybe $35 to $40. Bucks. The next type of test is molecular or PCR testing, which has largely replaced viral culture. These tests take at least one to eight hours and can also be obtained from swabs, aspirate, or wash of the nasal passages or throat. They are often part of a combined respiratory viral panel that will test for several viruses like adenovirus, parainfluenza, RSV, etc. Per a meta-analysis, the link of which I'll include in the podcast notes, the influenza A sensitivity of PCR testing is 92%. And for influenza B, 95%. The same meta-analysis showed a specificity of greater than 95% for both influenza A and B. These tests are more expensive, at least $80 to $100 for the influenza PCR alone, considerably more expensive for the multivirus panels. So 
there's really no perfect test for the flu. If you really must rule it in, then you're looking at the molecular PCR testing, which is not fast or cheap. Antigenic testing has a low sensitivity, but it's fast, still not that good at ruling out the flu. So if you think about who you should test, I do really recommend that you take a look at the materials from the CDC. So you start with asking the question, does this patient have signs and symptoms that suggest that they have the flu? including atypical clinical presentations or findings suggestive of complications associated with the flu, like pneumonia. So if the patient is being admitted to the hospital, then yes, I think you should test for the flu and really start empiric antiviral treatment for these hospitalized patients while the results of PCR testing are pending. If you're not going to admit a patient to the hospital that you suspect has the flu, then this is the most important question you can ask. Will influenza testing influence your clinical management? And if it will, and I'll get into some of the conditions in a moment, then, well, sure, go ahead and test. But by and large, you don't really need to. You know, if you clinically diagnose influenza and it's a patient that you would start antiviral therapy on, well, then Go do it. You don't need a positive flu test to start Tamiflu in a high-risk patient. Additionally, if your H&P suggests that the patient has another diagnosis and you're making that diagnosis, you don't need to test for the flu to see if they have flu as well. Now, some situations where testing makes sense because it will influence your clinical management. So certainly and most importantly, suspected flu in patients with high risk of complications. This includes kids with chronic diseases like CF, congenital heart disease, sickle cell, diabetes, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, the list goes on and on. The immunosuppressed, patients on chronic steroids, cancer treatment, HIV, short gut, any woman who is pregnant, and children on long-term aspirin therapy. You should really consider it in any child under the age of two. And in children where making the diagnosis of flu will influence the ongoing workup. The febrile neonate is a perfect example of this. Again, if you're admitting the patient to the hospital and it's high flu prevalence, go ahead and test. But don't wait for the test to treat if they think they have the flu. If you're not admitting the patient, then ask yourself if influenza testing results will influence your management. You know, otherwise, you're not necessarily going to be any more accurate than your clinical suspicion if you send a flu antigen. And yes, there may be the assumption that parents expect or prefer to have a test. Even in a busy urgent care setting with rapid turnover, I I think this mindset could be a fallacy. Parents want to know that their kid's safe. You know, they may have read about pediatric deaths from the flu, which do happen, but fortunately in very, very low rates. And they just want to be reassured. You can do this with knowledge and empathy alone. If you go into the room expecting that the parent will want to test, then you've already been biased. Resist the temptation to do broad testing before seeing patients, as this, in my experience, just begets more testing overall. We'll increase costs and decrease the availability of resources if we're in a long flu season. A patient who gets a test does not necessarily receive better care. You know, the test is not everything that parents want. They want somebody that is accurate, compassionate, and a good teacher that delivers all of this in a professional manner. 
No podcast on the flu is incomplete without a discussion of the use of antiviral agents. So again, patients that should get oseltamivir or Tamiflu or another one of the agents if you're using them for influenza should be at high risk for complications related to the disease and ideally have it started within 48 hours of illness, but you could start it later if the patient is critically ill with the knowledge that it may shorten hospitalization, reduce the risk of complications, or decrease the length of illness by a small degree. So children younger than two years of age, people with chronic pulmonary disease like asthma or CF, heart disease, renal disease, liver disease, sickle cell, metabolic disorders like diabetes, severe neurologic or neurodevelopmental problems, CP, epilepsy, you know, those sorts of things. Kids who are immunosuppressed, and that includes HIV and chronic steroids. Pregnant or immediately postpartum women, which are admittedly less common in the pediatric ED. Kids younger than 19 on long-term aspirin therapy. And children who live in nursing homes or other long-term care facilities. Dosing for Tamiflu is readily available, and I did post a link recently on PEMblog that you can check out. All right, so that's all I've got today on testing for the flu. Know that for most patients, the diagnosis can be made based on history and physical. And unless you're admitting the child to the hospital and or a positive flu test will guide management and make a change in what you do for the patient, you do not need to send a flu test. You do, however, have to have a good script for communication with patients and families about the utility or lack thereof of testing and how clinical diagnosis is helpful in most cases. You can follow me on Twitter at PemTweets and check out PemBlog for more great pediatric emergency medicine-focused educational content. Go ahead and leave a review on iTunes or leave a comment on the blog. I'd really appreciate the feedback. Until next time, this has been Brad Soboleski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast.